the Bush administration eagerly exploited post 9-11 sentiment, channeled it into a wrathful direction and pursued a foreign policy in its first term that was basically the geopolitical equivalent of a psychotic episode. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It was 20 years ago this month that the George W. Bush administration began its ill-fated invasion and occupation of Iraq. The ostensible justification for this war of choice was that the Iraqi regime had weapons of mass destruction that it might someday use against the United States. This premise proved to be false, and today the Iraq war is widely regarded to have been a massive strategic blunder. It resulted in the deaths of over 4,000 American service members and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. I'm joined today by journalist Spencer Ackerman, who, when we were both early in our careers, was one of my go-to sources for news and analysis of the unfolding disaster of the U.S. occupation of Iraq. In our conversation, we ask the question, now with 20 years of hindsight, why did the U.S. launch this war? We also discuss the many lasting legacies of this decision on U.S. foreign policy and international relations today. Spencer Ackerman is a foreign policy columnist for The Nation and writes the newsletter Forever Wars. He is the author of what I believe to be the best foreign policy book of the last decade, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. I highly recommend this book, which is now out on paperback. As always, if you have recommendations of topics I should cover, people I should interview, or if you have anything on your mind, I would love to hear from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to reach me. I read all of your emails. I'll respond to all your emails. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with journalist Spencer Ackerman. If I were to ask you 20 years ago why the U.S. decided to invade and occupy Iraq, 
how would you have answered that question back then compared to how do you answer that question today? Back then, I would say I was not at a great point in my life. I was, I think, more than I even realized, deeply 9-11 pilled and high on the same kind of American exceptionalist supply. You know, I was just about to turn 23 years old when the U.S. invaded Iraq. And I probably would have said that given the threats shown by 9-11, the Bush administration's case for the war is shoddy and full of like obvious nonsense. Some of it less obvious nonsense than others, but like it's clear that like this is not really what's going on here. But at the same time, the need for a free Iraq was probably something not just worth doing, but something valorous and something that the United States, if it had the ability to do it, ought to devote its great power and wealth to do so. And that view, to be clear, at the time was the dominant view of, I would say, left of center folks at the time. And there was like lots of intellectual firepower behind that view that you just articulated. Yeah, I just say that, you know, to be honest about like where I was at that point, it would it would ultimately turn out to be not where I've ended up. I was protesting on the streets in college. I was I was already a hippie back then. You outpaced me, Mark, in this in so many <laughs> other ways. And, you know, now the joke was on me, so to speak. But what I also wouldn't have said in the time is something that Alan Greenspan subsequently said in about, I think, either 2007 or 2008, in which he reflected that the Iraq war was largely fought because of oil, that this was a resource war, that this was not just limited to a resource grab concerning oil, but concerning so much else of the Iraqi state, operations that were under the Coalition Provisional Authority, the U.S. Occupation Authority's order, I believe it was Order 39 in September of 2003, that privatized Iraqi state enterprises and more importantly, opened them up to foreign investment and really meaning control. And, you know, Greenspan said that he advised George W. Bush to invade Iraq for that reason, to secure the global supply of oil. Is that the only reason? No. But, you know, as much as ideology, I think, in Washington, that's roughly stretching from neoconservative to liberal internationalist, will kind of go to great lengths to, you know, complicate or outright deny. The reason why the United States focuses on this region is because it is fundamentally so resource rich and so important for basically the global economy because we are in a hydrocarbon capitalist economy. You know, beyond that kind of base layer, the 9-11 attacks to many were a sign of vulnerability and it created an enormous amount of public fear and unscrupulous politicians in the Bush administration and gone along with by many in the Democratic Party's foreign policy apparatus at the time, and indeed in the media, used those attacks to transform the limits of what was possible and acceptable uses of American military power. 
not obviously unlike any that had ever come before, but operating with minimal constraints, whereas previously there would have been even more opposition to invading and occupying Iraq and remaining in that position than there were. It would have been vastly more difficult had 9-11 not happened and had the Bush administration not made the most hysterical and fear-inducing argument to the point where even though Bush stopped somewhat short of saying this, on the eve of the invasion, something like 70% of the country believed that Saddam Hussein bore some responsibility, like active responsibility for 9-11, which was never true. And there was like this concerted effort by supporters of the war to muddy those waters and to try to make the case that Saddam had something to do with 9-11, again, in order to like justify an invasion and an occupation that they were promoting at the time. You just briefly touched on this, but in addition to, I guess, what's fundamentally like an imperialist project of resource extraction in a foreign country, what role do you believe that ideology in general and neoconservatism in particular played? And how would you define neoconservatism as it existed back then? So as it existed back then, neoconservatism was fundamentally an imperialist project, highly militarized vision of foreign policy that also had to do with a certain sense of American messianism that in one sense, and you saw this in a lot of neoconservative overwrought laments for the supposed peace period of the 1990s, that there was something that would be allowed to corrode in the American character if the United States were not waging some history-generating war. And after 9-11, many neoconservative adherents within the Bush administration had the sponsorship because this was fundamentally a bureaucratic alliance that served each other's purposes with traditional American militarists like Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld, who were very interested in maximizing the American unipolar moment after the end of the Cold War to ensure a sustained period of American dominance geopolitically and geoeconomically throughout the next century. This was basically an opportunity to expand the limits of what American hegemony could achieve and demonstrate after the attacks of 9-11 that challenges to this both A, would not be tolerated, and B, I don't think they would put it in these terms, but could be marshaled for this broader hegemonic project. And specifically, the neoconservatives argued and presented to the public that this was all done, that is to say, the invasion and occupation of Iraq in order to promote democracy. And that went out the window pretty quick, I would contend. I mean, one of the ultimate epitaphs for this is in 2020, when after the United States assassinates in Baghdad, the Iranian external security chief, Qasem Soleimani, the Iraqi parliament like immediately registers outrage and votes to expel U.S. troops from Iraq. And almost immediately, the State Department issued a statement like few I've ever seen from them, 
informing Iraq that no such departure will take place, informing Iraq that future parameters for discussing the U.S. troop presence are going to be limited at what the function of that troop presence will be, not whether it will be. So at that point, you really had, if nothing else had changed your mind up until that point, like there is this bitter epitaph where the United States made very clear that the Iraqi democracy that it set up and that 4,500 U.S. troops, 3,500 contractors, and an untold number of Iraqis estimated in the hundreds of thousands, possibly in the millions, died for this. And the Iraqi parliament learned from the U.S. State Department that Iraqi democracy ends where U.S. military interests begin. Iraqi democracy can't and won't touch the U.S. presence. So given the outcome of Iraq, as you just described it, to what extent is neoconservatism as an ideology still prominent in American foreign policy today? I mean, we're speaking a day or so after Ron DeSantis seemed to align himself with a more Trumpian foreign policy. And there are certainly like avatars of neoconservatism out there, like Nikki Haley is, is one prominent one, maybe Mike Pence as well, who might be vying for the Republican nomination. But it seems that it is an ideology that's now fallen out of favor as a consequence of the Iraq debacle. I think in general, that's true. But at the same time, neoconservatism has always been an elite ideology and an elite preoccupation. You know, it has no legions, right? There's no MAGA. There's no Bernie movement. There's just nothing like that. What it is, is amongst, you know, elites from politics to corporate titans to some military figures in some degree, pretty, you know, fewer and fewer I've found in the last generation. But, you know, the truth is also that neoconservatism drew upon really longstanding established patterns of American imperial practice, that it is often a matter of degree to which liberal interventionism and neoconservatism disagree, and the degree to which that disagreement is about means and not about ends. And I read recently, you know, the warnings of Bob Kagan about, you know, what is necessary against Russia and what is necessary against China as two cult wars simultaneously seem to be coalescing. And so that should, you know, demonstrate that there is still an elite appetite for this because there is so much of patterns of American geopolitical, geoeconomic practice that align with neoconservatism and that neoconservatism can, with a great degree of intellectual honesty about this at least, say like, no, we are an authentic and longstanding American intellectual tradition about foreign policy. So I wanted to ask you about the legacies of Iraq on U.S. foreign policy today. I do also want to acknowledge something that you did that obviously one of the the most important legacy is the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed and the some 4,500 Americans dead in the war. But looking at the impact of 
the decision 20 years ago to invade and occupy Iraq and the lasting way that that has shaped American views about foreign policy, it would seem that just as you acknowledged at the start of the conversation, that one of the reasons that Bush was able to launch this invasion and occupation of Iraq was that the American people overwhelmingly supported it. I'd say that one of the legacies of Iraq today is that the American public is kind of chastened a bit and is less willing or less predisposed, I should say, to military adventurism. Do you agree with that? I have some disagreements. I think, in general, people like us who talk about foreign policy and national security tend to conflate poll numbers for depth of support. The fact of the matter is, is foreign policy, there are many things about the American project right now that are pretty undemocratic. But, you know, foreign policy, even in its normal, whatever normal means for, you know, the American last century, at its normal kind of resting state, is going to be a pretty undemocratic enterprise. And so I think it misstates things to cast the Iraq war as a popular enterprise, as if people were out in the streets demanding an invasion, when in fact, what was happening was people were out in the streets demanding that no such invasion occur. What I mean by that is that the Bush administration eagerly exploited post 9-11 sentiment, channeled it into a wrathful direction, and pursued a foreign policy in its first term that was basically the geopolitical equivalent of a psychotic episode. And it used the way that they were able through fear-mongering, through, you know, calling triple amputees from Vietnam, you know, mashing up their faces with Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. And, and you're, you're referring to uh, the Georgia Senate campaign, Max Cleland. Who voted for the war, and that still happened to him. For those who, who may not remember, in the 2002 election, the Republican Party, you know, with the full support of the White House, basically made the war on terror a voting issue, and you were either with Bush or you were with the terrorists. And they were very happy to use that message. It was a moment where you saw how the Bush administration very clearly was willing, able, and eager to use the post-9-11 political climate when it favored them. And accordingly, after that, the numbers for the war I don't think really generated any of that. It was a reflection of that already being out there. So I don't know if that counts as a quibble, but I don't think that we can really say the Iraq war was you know, the result of public enthusiasm. I think that what existed for it was channeled and directed in a pretty cynical fashion. Nevertheless, the legacies of the Iraq war are so many. Behind that question, that presentation, is something very true, which is that seeing not just how cynically the war was marketed to America, it was delivered, I think this gets you know somewhat less appreciation than it ought to, on promises that all of these amazing things would happen, that we would be greeted as liberators, that you know Iraq would become this new ally, that a new birth of freedom would bloom in the Middle East and accordingly wipe away any enthusiasm for al-Qaeda, which was always a vastly overstated phenomenon as well, one that meant the end of a tremendous amount of people. 
all of that, when that started to be exposed for being really bitter at the minimum misforecasts and deep acts of irresponsibility, violations of the public trust, and violations certainly of international law, that made the enterprise crater and made people so much less receptive to a foreign policy that dressed you know, militarism up in the most cynical and idealistic of presentations. That's one. Also, we live in, you know, a moment where the United States likes to say, with justification, certainly with Russia, that it is having the great powers, China and Russia, routinely violate the rules-based international order, or, you know, in China's case, it's usually something more like shows that it's not interested in abiding by the established rules of the rules-based international order and so forth. This was a period in history where America was at the absolute apogee of its power and faced the fewest constraints even in a setting of global hegemony after 9-11. And this was how the United States exercised that power, by blatantly violating the United Nations Charter, engaging in an act of, you can only call it aggression in the parlance of international law. This was an aggressive war justified ultimately baselessly. You can scale that up to deceitfully. And nevertheless, when the United States violates all of that, it does so claiming that ultimately it will strengthen that international order. George Bush used to say that this, you know, he would urge the United Nations to vote for the Iraq invasion, to bless the Iraq invasion by saying, put some calcium in your backbone. This will make the world safer, ultimately. In 2007, Vladimir Putin goes to the Munich Security Conference, and ever since 2014, and then again in 2022 with the full Ukraine invasion, we've gone back to the Putin speech at Munich again and again. One of the things that I think the United States has not faced, and I write extensively about how the United States has tried again and again and again, successfully usually, to defer a reckoning for what it did in Iraq, is Putin basically says, great international order you've built here, really rules-based, and you've set everything on fire, like I said would happen, like Chirac said would happen, that is the leader of France, and like Schroeder said would happen, like the leader of Germany. And I'm not going to abide by this anymore. This is nonsense. This is a clear application of American aggression and raised to appear as if it is, in effect, anything Americans do internationally is lawful. And whoever they say are the lawbreakers are the lawbreakers. You know, that's really the heartbreaking, the worst person you know made a great point meme. But in addition, Putin's apologists point to that speech and believe that Putin was saying he wanted to be an alternative to that world. In reality, as we've seen in Ukraine, as we saw you know, even earlier in Georgia, what Putin was saying was, I'll have what she's having. Putin was saying, if this is the way the United States guarantees an international order and calls it rules-based, that's absolutely nonsense and nothing more than the prerogative of the states powerful enough to do that, and I'll take that for myself. And so when the United States today talks about its role in the world as promoting a rules-based international order, the unfortunate reality is it did enormous and quite possibly not recoverable damage by invading Iraq. And we haven't even gotten to another legacy, which is ISIS. So 20 years on, it's clear that 
the shockwaves from shock and awe are still reverberating. 10 years from now or 20 years from now, do you still foresee ripple effects from that decision 20 years ago to be having a meaningful impact on international relations? Absolutely. Only Americans would think of 20 years as ancient history. This is a war that, again, depending on which epidemiological models you use, somewhere between 300,000 and 2 million people, quite possibly more, lost their lives. More than 4 million others became refugees. Eventually, it generated enemies worse than it went to destroy, first with the establishment of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which did not exist before the U.S. invasion, then metastasizing after the U.S. claimed to have crushed it into what would become first the Islamic State in Iraq and then the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. I think it's quite possibly imprecise to say, you know, the after effects of this decision, because the effects are still happening. You know, 2017, the U.S.-backed and Iranian-backed Iraqi security forces fought one of the most grueling battles of urban warfare since the World War II era, and that was in Mosul. There are still, I think, something like 50,000 people just across the border at Al-Hol in Syria who are basically living in an open-air prison patrolled by the United States' mostly Kurdish allies, some of them being former ISIS fighters, some of them being relatives of them, many of them being simply civilians who were trying to flee, who, uh, Raqqa, the former ISIS capital in Syria. And this situation is, has festered for years. It would be irrational and ahistoric to expect that there wouldn't be continued ripple effects from this. You know, we were recording this days after the Chinese brokered and guaranteed a bit of a detente between the Iranians and the Saudis. Well, if there was a winner of the Iraq war, it was probably Iran. It was probably also the U.S. military industrial complex, but certainly, you know, as an external force, Iran capitalized and expanded its power in, in the region once it realized how expertly it could exploit compounding American mistakes. And then the following decade, in addition to dealing with ISIS, another legacy of the Iraq invasion, the United States crafted for the better part of a decade, a foreign policy predicated on assembling, marshalling, and resourcing a coalition of allied states in the Middle East against Iran that would ultimately knit together, as we saw with the Abraham Accords, Israel and the Gulf states. And now this is a sudden complication thrown in that work. So, you know, I don't mean to be a kind of monocausal crank and say that, you know, everything that's happened since is the result of the Iraq war, just to say that I think we have tended because it's such an ugly period in such an irresponsible and such an unfinished period in history caused by the United States that we tend to minimize the legacy of that decision and believe in some sense that the 2007 to 2008 Iraq surge that brought down U.S. troop deaths and to some degree brought down Iraqi civilian casualties somehow kind of settled everything. I am something of a monocausal crank when it comes to the uh, Iraq war. And I would just add as, as a coda of the sort of geopolitical winners of Iraq, you know, you noted China brokering this Iran-Saudi deal. I saw 
the other day that China and Iraq have decided to settle their bilateral debts in the renminbi as opposed to the US dollar, which oh, wow. seems to say volumes. Do you want to just quickly explain that? Because, I mean, maybe there's, you know, need currency diplomacy lessons. Yeah, I mean, most when two countries owe each other money around the world, it's typically done in U.S. dollars. Chinese diplomacy as of late has been seeking to exclude the U.S. dollar from those transactions in order to make the Chinese economy more resilient to potential U.S. sanctions. And it's just fascinating to me to see that in the year 2023, China and Iraq were able to effectuate that deal to settle their debts in the Chinese currency. And just to just add to that a bit, all global petroleum deals are done in dollars. And there is a tremendous amount of speculation, some of which the Saudis have kind of stoked in terms of expectations, that they're going to come up with at least some kind of either financing or other vehicle for oil sales to China in renminbi. And to have that happen in Saudi Arabia will be seismic. And if it also happens, because of course, Iraq has the second most oil reserves in the world, in Iraq would also be quite a turn of the historical ratchet. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>